Today's podcast comes from a sermon presented by our late brother in Christ, Garland Elkins. As one of his favorite sermons to preach, Brother Elkins addresses 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul stated, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. From this simple statement, we see that we can imitate faithful brethren only in those ways they faithfully imitate Jesus. Join Garland Elkins as he looks at the life of Paul to see what Paul learned from his early life against Christianity and then through his penitent change of life as a follower of Christ. It is certainly a pleasure to have the great and exalted privilege of preaching the gospel of Christ. But one of my favorite uh, gospel preachers, an inspired man, the Apostle Paul, is one about which I would like to discuss today. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul said, Be ye followers or imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. And so we can follow Paul as he followed Christ. But we should never follow anyone beyond that point. In other words, if a person follows this book, but then at a certain point he deviates from this book, we should stay with this book. And certainly we should not leave the book of God, and we should not leave the truth of God to follow any man. Follow man only to the degree that he follows Christ. That's what Paul said. Notice it again in 1 Corinthians 1.11. Be imitators of me, even as I also follow Christ. What I would like to do in this sermon is to show some things that Paul learned. First, some things that he learned while he was an alien sinner, while he was lost, and some things that he learned that were necessary for him to do in becoming a child of God, and then to talk about some things that Paul learned as a Christian. And these things we, of course, need to learn. You remember that the Bible says in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16, that Paul wrote, I thank him that enabled me, even Christ Jesus, for that he counted me faithful, appointed me to his service. Though I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, howbeit I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of God abounded exceedingly with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Faithful is the saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And then in verse 16, Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me as chief might Jesus Christ show forth all his long suffering, For an ensample, and the American Standard says ensample, the King James uses the word pattern there, it can be translated any way, either way, for an ensample of all them that should thereafter believe on him unto eternal life. Now, what did Paul learn when he was not a Christian and in the process of becoming a Christian that many people need to learn? You will note that I called attention to 1 Timothy 1.13. Paul said about his former life, and when he wrote this, he was an apostle and had been for many years, faithful Christian, gospel preacher. He said, Though I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, howbeit I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in my unbelief. Now, Paul was a very religious man, but he said that he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, and he was injurious. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he said, Faithful is the saying and worthy of all acceptation 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now, Paul was honest and sincere, thought he was doing the right thing, but he said that he was chief of sinners while he was persecuting Christ and the church. And speaking of the fact that he was sincere, thought he was right, he said himself when appearing before a king in Acts 26, 9, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul never violated his conscience, and yet he still said that he was chief of sinners during that time. In Acts 23, 1, it is said, and Paul looking steadfastly on the council said, Brethren, I have lived before God in all good conscience unto this day. And the high priest commanded that someone smite Paul on the mouth for making that statement, but Paul told the truth. When Paul held the clothes of those who stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr, he thought that Stephen was a blasphemer. He thought that he was doing what the Lord wanted him to do. His conscience did not bother him, but that did not make him right. Now, there are some people today, in fact, many people who will say, let your conscience be your guide. Well, friends, Christ said to the apostles that the time would come when they would be persecuted. He said they will cast you out of their synagogues. And among other things, he said that when men kill you, they will think that they do God a service. Now, I think all of us know they did not do God a service when they killed the apostles as in the case of Herod beheading James in Acts 12. But he said they, they would think that they were doing God a service. And Paul said his conscience did not bother him. Now, what is a conscience? You know, that's an interesting word, and, and many people do not really know the definition of a conscience. But all of us have at least some idea, perhaps, about it. If I were to be limited to only one passage, and there are many passages that deal with the subject, but if someone were to limit me to only one passage that they would allow me to cite to show what a conscience is, I think perhaps I would choose Hebrews 13, 18, where the Hebrew writer said, Pray for us, for we are persuaded that we have a, notice, good conscience. But notice, desiring to live honestly, desiring to live honorably in all things. The conscience within us is that faculty which the Lord has put within our physical and mental makeup, which either approves or disapproves what we think is right. Now, if we have not been taught the truth, and we've been taught that error is truth, and we live up to that, our conscience would not bother us. While if we have been taught the truth, and somebody teaches that that is wrong, and you believe what they teach, you could do that which is wrong, as in the case of Paul, and your conscience would not smite you. Paul, looking on the council, said, Brethren, I've lived before God in all good conscience unto this day. And so one's conscience is not enough. A good conscience is not enough to prove that he is a child of God and going to be saved. Now, of course, when one learns the truth, he cannot have a good conscience unless he obeys it. For example, in 1 Peter 3.21, Peter wrote, The like figure when to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but now notice, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the conscience will not be the guide by which we're to be judged on the day of judgment, 
but it is this book. In John 12, 48, Christ said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The words which I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last days. Furthermore, in the last day is the way it is worded. Now, furthermore, Paul learned that baptism is necessary in order to be saved. In other words, uh, he learned that you do not contact the blood of Christ until and without baptism. In Romans 6, 1 through 4, Paul wrote, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized, notice, baptized into Jesus Christ. Well, that's where all the spiritual blessings are. In 2 Timothy 2 and 10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they also may obtain the salvation, now notice where it is located, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so it says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ. That's where all the spiritual blessings are. Ephesians 1.3. That's where all the spiritual promises are. 2 Corinthians 1.20. But how do we get into Christ? Well, Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is the way we enter into Christ. But he not only said, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ. He said, We're baptized into his death. Now that's where the blood was shed. The blood of Christ. John 19.33 and 34. But the only way that one can contact that blood is by being baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was told in Acts 22:16 by Ananias the gospel preacher, "And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord." Now friends, no one is ever saved from his past sins until he obeys the will of Christ as set out in the New Testament. But no one can obey the will of Christ without being baptized. For it was Jesus who said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. While we're speaking to this point, I want to call attention to some conversions, including that of Paul's. We'll come back to that. I want to point out that in every case, a person, the first condition a person had to meet after hearing the gospel was to believe it. But in every case, the last step before he was saved and reached salvation in the process of being saved was he had to be baptized into Christ. And we don't have uh, enough time to go into great detail, but let me illustrate this. For example, in Acts 16, there was a jailer who had never heard the truth about Christ. And Paul and Silas had been severely beaten, militantly wronged, and put into prison. And having been beaten severely, the jailer was given charge that he was to keep these prisoners safe. He therefore thrust them into the inner prison, the Bible says, and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now then, let's see what happened in this case. In Acts 16, 25 through 34, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. You know, I don't know whether I could have been uh, singing or not, having been beaten severely. I think I would have been praying for sure. And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. 
And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awakened out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Well, he knew if they were gone, that his superiors would take his life. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In verse 31, And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. I know of a denominational preacher who wrote a tract and said he was going to tell people what to do to be saved. And when he came to verse 31, he gave that verse, and then he wrote in capital letters, S-T-O-P. In other words, do not read any farther, for you will see Paul had that the jailer had to be baptized, that Paul taught and Silas taught the jailer he had to be baptized in his house in order to be saved. Well, first they told him to believe because this man was a heathen. He didn't know anything about Christ. And you remember that Christ said in John 8, 21 and 24, except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And where I go, he said, there you cannot come. And so the next verse says, verse 32, and they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. Well, of course, because in Romans 10, 17, we learn that's how faith comes. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway, that is, he and all his immediately. Now, earlier, these brethren had been severely beaten. Now the jailer washes their stripes, implying that he was penitent. But then the Bible says, not only does it say he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, it is said, he set meat before them. Now, I want you to note where he rejoiced. It was after baptism, not before. You hear preachers on, on radio, see them on TV, hear them in pulpits, who claim people are saved before baptism. They teach people to rejoice before baptism, but that's not Bible teaching. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. By the way, I might say this, that in the book of Acts, the Acts of Conversion, nobody ever rejoiced because of sins remitted until after baptism. And here's an example of it. Now, the first step in becoming a Christian for the jailer and his household was to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The last step was, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized he and all his straightway. Well, suppose that a, a people, a group of people, have learned the truth that Christ is the Son of God. But they have uh, what, what after faith? What is the next step after faith? And notice again, baptism will be the last step, as in all of these cases. In Acts 2, Peter preached about Christ. That was his subject. In Acts 2.22, he said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God unto you, by mighty works and signs and wonders which God did by him in the midst of you, even as ye yourselves know. Then he presented four proofs or evidences that Christ is indeed the Son of God. Then he began the conclusion to his sermon in Acts 
through 38. It is said, he, therefore he said unto them, you remember this, therefore let all of the house of Israel know assuredly, that means of a certainty, therefore let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now there was a movement in this country some years ago called the Crossroads Movement. They would sometimes ask a person, they would say, even a, a Christian who had obeyed the gospel, they would say, you accept, accepted Christ as your Savior, but did you accept Him as your Lord? And then they would want to rebaptize people who'd been scripturally baptized. Well, friends, if you accept Christ at all correctly, you accept Him both as your Lord and Christ. Note the passage again in Acts 2.36. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now that's the question. All right, what were they told to do? Well, they were told in Acts 2.38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, they were believers, so the next thing they needed to do was to repent. And again, the final thing was to be baptized for in order to obtain the remission of your sins. And the Bible says in Acts 2.41, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, we saw in the case of the jailer and his household, the first thing he was told to do was to believe because he didn't know anything about Christ. The last step was he was baptized. In the case of the Pentecostians, they were believers and wanted to know what to do. Then following belief, they were told to repent, and the last step was baptism for remission of sins. Now let's look at another case of conversion in which we see a believing penitent was told what followed that. For example, you remember in Acts 8, 5 that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached unto them the Christ, Acts 8, 5. His sermon had three points in it, Acts 8, 12. Now, when they believed Philip preaching good tidings concerning the name of Jesus Christ, and uh, names three different things that are mentioned here, the, the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. You'll notice no little babies were baptized because babies are, have committed no sin. And baptism is for remission of sins. Now notice it again, Acts 8, 12. Now when they believed Philip preaching good tidings concerning the kingdom of God, and that's the church as we learn from other passages, the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, well, that's the authority of Christ. Colossians 3, 17, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks unto God the Father by Him. They were baptized, both men and women. So he preached the truth about the church, he preached the truth about the authority of Christ, and he preached baptism when he preached Christ. But there was a man from far off Ethiopia who had been to Jerusalem for to worship, the Bible says, and he did not come in contact with people who taught him the truth while he was there. So let's follow this story for a little bit. In Acts 8, 26 through 39, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, 
and had come to Jerusalem for to worship was returning and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Now you see the angel said nothing to the, to the sinner. He didn't know he'd said anything to the preacher. But in Acts 11, when an angel appeared to an alien sinner, Cornelius, the angel there did not tell him what to do to be saved, but he told him to send to Joppa for Simon Peter, who will tell thee words, Acts 11, 14, whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Well, the Holy Spirit never told anybody directly what to be saved, nor did an angel, as I've just mentioned. By the way, neither did the Lord Jesus Christ. He told Paul in Acts 9, 6, after Paul had fallen to the earth, trembling and astonished, and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The Lord said, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. But then in Acts 8, we read this, Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. I remember years ago that Brother G.K. Wallace said, by the way, the Spirit didn't say anything to the alien sinner either. He spoke to the preacher, the inspired preacher. Brother G.K. Wallace said that he was in a meeting in Arkansas. One night he was going toward the building, walking down the street toward the meeting house. And he heard a man running from behind him, and he ran up to him and asked Brother Wallace, Sir, are you a Christian? He said, Well, of course I am a Christian, and I am a gospel preacher, and I am in a gospel meeting just down the street, and I'm on my way there to preach. Come and hear me. He said that seemed to frustrate the man, and he said, The Holy Spirit told me to run up here and ask you if you were a Christian. Brother Wallace said, The Holy Spirit didn't do any such thing. He knows that I am a Christian. Some other kind of spirit must have gotten hold of you. Listen, the Holy Spirit does not miraculously operate upon anybody today, as we learn in many passages, if time permitted me to cite them. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Now, note the next verse because it talks about the scripture that the eunuch was reading. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his sharer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? That is, who can describe such a wicked generation that would kill the pure and perfect Son of God? Who shall describe or declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now the eunuch did not know, did not understand about whom this uh, prophet was writing. By the way, that's in Isaiah chapter 53 in our English Bibles. The next verse says, And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, and began at the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. Now I want you to remember that he is preaching Jesus. I've heard Billy Graham and others who claim they're preaching Jesus, but they do not preach like Philip. Because when Philip preached Jesus, people realized the necessity to be baptized. Mr. Graham's and, Mr. Graham and others like him will not teach people to be baptized in order to be saved. But now notice, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. By the way, I've been in that part of the country, and there is still water in that place. But if there were no water there today, 
I know there was water then, for the Bible said there was water. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now I want you to notice, Philip preached Jesus unto this eunuch. But when the eunuch heard Jesus preached, he wanted to be baptized. Well, why? Because baptism is necessary. Again, I mentioned Mark 16, 16. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And so, and as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What did hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, you know what Paul calls that the good confession in 1 Timothy 6, 12 through 14. And that is the confession after we hear the gospel and believe it and repent of every sin. That is the confession that must be made before baptism. The eunuch was about to overlook that. Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he, that is the eunuch, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to go down, to stand still, and they went down both into the water. I want you to notice both is going to be mentioned twice, both about the preacher and the eunuch, the alien sinner. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. Now, why did it repeat that? Well, the Holy Spirit knew the time had come when people would substitute sprinkling and pouring for an immersion, for a burial. Paul, you know, said in Ephesians 1, 4 or 5, there's one baptism. He said in Colossians 2, 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead. So the Bible said, and he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. Now, while they were down in that water, what happened? And he, that is Philip, and he baptized him. He immersed him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more. And then what did he do? And he went on his way rejoicing. As I mentioned earlier, nobody ever rejoiced because of sins remitted. No record of anybody ever rejoicing until his sins were remitted after baptism. So baptism is necessary. Now back to Paul. I mentioned that Saul heard the Lord. He appeared to him on the Damascus Road. Paul was convinced of who Christ was. He certainly believed, and he confessed Christ. Lord, what would thou have me to do? He acknowledged Christ, and he was told to go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. But for three days he neither ate nor drank, and was blind, Acts 9, 9. And after three days, a gospel preacher by the name of Ananias came to Paul, and here's what he said to him. Now, you see, in every case, all of these... Uh, People who are converted had to believe. Sometimes it's explicitly stated. Sometimes it's just implicitly taught. But all of them had to believe. The jailer explicitly was told that. In every case, everyone had to repent. That is explicitly stated in the case of the Pentecostians. By the way, all people have to repent. I must repent to go to heaven. Acts 17.30, And the time of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And the eunuch, before he could be baptized, had to make, it was a duty, but also a privilege to make the confession. 
And the good confession is, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's all we ever ask anybody when they come forward to become a Christian. And so then uh, he commanded the chariots to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And what did he do? And he went on his way, rejoicing. Paul learned that the blood of Christ is necessary, for Hebrews 9.22 says about the blood of Christ, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. But he learned you cannot contact that blood in any way other than being baptized into Christ and into the death of Christ, and that's where his blood was shed. Here's something else Paul learned. He learned that the church of Christ is the body of Christ and that the Lord built but one church. For example, in Acts, and perhaps even Ephesians would be better for me to cite, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Paul said, and hath put all things under his feet, and given to be the head over all things to the church. Now notice, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And so the church is the spiritual body of Christ. But then in Colossians 1, 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. So the church is the body and the body is the church. Two different ways of referring to the saved people of God. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now, in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, I pointed out that he pointed out the church, which is his body. Now, then, how many bodies are there? In Ephesians 4, 4, Paul said there is one body, but the body is the church. So that is equivalent to saying that there is one church. But somebody might say... Well, you know, Brother Elkins, I know it says there's one body. I know it says the, the church is the body of Christ, but it does not say there is just one body, but one body. Well, friends, it does say that. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, 20, Paul said, But now are they many members, notice how it is worded, yet but one body. There is but one church built by Christ, and we are members of it, and we're trying to get other people to become members of it. Salvation is in that one body, that one church. In Ephesians 5, 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. On the day of Pentecost, when people obeyed the gospel, as I mentioned earlier in Acts 2, 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. But in verse 47, the end of uh, that chapter, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. There is one church and only one church built by Christ, and salvation is in it. Now, sometimes people uh, appear to be confused. They say, we read about seven churches of Asia. And they think that means seven different kinds of churches. But friends, uh, that is not so. Those congregations were the same type congregations, but they were located geographically in different locales. For example, we read in Galatians 1-2 that that letter addressed to the churches of Galatia. We read of the churches of Judea. In Galatians 1.22, we read of the churches of Macedonia. 
in the second Corinthian letter and in Romans 16, 16, salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. But they were never not different kinds of churches. I want to show you from the Bible that they had exactly the same teaching. For example, Paul wrote a letter to Laodicea and the Holy Spirit did not see fit to preserve that for us. And the reason is all things that pertain to life and godliness have been revealed. We have all of that here. There was nothing in that letter that pertains to life and godliness that is not covered and recorded somewhere else in this book. But he wrote a letter to the Colossian congregation and they were situated nearby each other, Colossae and Laodicea. And the Colossian congregation, that is the letter to the Colossian congregation, is preserved for us. But you know what? Those congregations had exactly the same teaching. In Colossians 4.16, he said to the church at Colossae, the church of Christ at Colossae, And when this epistle hath been read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So they had exactly the same teaching. And Paul learned that. And he became a member of the body of Christ, the church of the Lord, through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. And all who want to do that today have the same exalted privilege. But here's something else that I think I should mention in connection with this. Denominationalism is unauthorized by the Word of God. Denominationalism is based upon division. There would be no denominations if there were not different kinds of doctrines taught. I remember in James 3, 14 through 16, James said, But if ye have bitter jealousy and faction in your heart, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom is not a wisdom that cometh down from above, but now notice, but is earthly sensual, devilish. For where jealousy and faction are, there is confusion and every vile deed. But 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not the author of confusion. Well, you wouldn't have denominations if they didn't teach different doctrines. And it is based upon faction and confusion, but God is not the author, author of confusion. Therefore, God is not the author of denominationalism. And remember that Jesus prayed for unity among those who profess to follow him. In John 17, 1 through 5, he prayed for himself. Then he prayed for the apostles in 5 through 9. In verses 20 and 21, he prayed for all of us who would ever believe on him. He said, neither pray I for these alone, talking about the apostles, neither pray I for these alone, but for, for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they also notice may be one. To what degree? As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Now notice one of the reasons why. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. One of the reasons we have so many atheists, infidels, and agnostics is the mere fact that religious division exists and denominationalism promulgates that more than anything at all, that you, anything you can think about at all. So Paul learned that there's one church and salvation is in that church. Now then, Paul learned the church of Christ is not a sect. You may remember in Acts 24, 5, when Paul was on trial, he said, well, first of all, let me mention what the lawyer said about him, an orator by the name of Tertullius, along with the high priest and others were in the courtroom that day. You remember they said this about Paul in Acts 24, 5, for we have found this man 
a pestilent fellow and a mover of insurrections among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He called the church a sect. Now, Paul denied that the church of Christ is a sect in that same chapter. And he explicitly denied that they could prove that the church is a sect in Acts 24, 13, and 14. Paul said about their charges, he said, neither can they prove to thee the things whereof they now accuse me. Notice how it is worded. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call a sect, anytime you find the word sect used in the Bible, it's used in a bad sense. It is used by the enemies of the Lord. In some instances, those who may be honest and sincere, but who are uninformed, it is never used in a good sense by Christ or the apostles or any inspired man. Neither can they prove to thee the things wherefore they now accuse me, but this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call a sect, so serve I the God of our fathers, believing all things which are according to the law and which are written in the prophets. But you know, in spite of Paul denying that the church of Christ is a sect, the idea persisted in some quarters some years after that. You remember that when Paul was taken to Rome as a prisoner, and when the leaders of the Jews from Rome met him, among other things they said in the last chapter of Acts, Acts 28, 22, but we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest, for as concerning this sect, they called it a sect, for as concerning this sect, it is known to us that everywhere it is spoken against. Paul learned that church is not a sect, and he learned it was the body of Christ. He learned how to become a Christian, and he did so, even later becoming an apostle and a great faithful and able gospel preacher. Now, these are some things Paul learned before he became a Christian and in the process of becoming a Christian. Now then, let's talk about some things Paul learned as a Christian. And we need to learn these things. In Philippians 4, 11 and 12. That is, we need to learn to become Christians, and then having become Christians, we need to learn what Paul learned as a Christian. In Philippians 4, 11 and 12, he said, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, and you see, he didn't always know this, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know also how to abound. Then he uses the expression again, in everything and in all things have I learned the secret both to be filled and to be hungry, both to abound and to be in want. What are some of the things Paul learned as a Christian? One thing he learned was that God, through his providence, will make all things work together for a good for his faithful children. He said that in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You remember in the Old Testament, when Joseph's brethren sold him for 20 pieces of silver into bondage. And after he brought Jacob and his uh, other relatives to Egypt, and eventually Jacob died and they had buried him. And when they came back home, his brothers offered to be his slaves. And Joseph wept. He raised the question, am I in the stead or place of God? But in Genesis 50, 20, he made this remarkable statement. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good 
to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Well, Paul lived many, many years after that, but he learned that God can make all things work together for our good. For example, Paul established the congregation at Philippi. As I mentioned in Acts 16, 25 through 34, but now, having preached for many years, he is in prison in Rome, and he writes a letter to that good congregation at Philippi. And here are some things that he said in Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Now I would have you know, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather into the progress of the gospel, so that my bonds became manifest in Christ throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and all the rest, and that most of the brethren... And the Lord, being confident through my bonds, are more abundantly bold to speak the word of God without fear. Paul said, in effect, through God's providence, and there was nothing miraculous about this, Paul went to jail, preached the truth, and the truth does not return void. And he established the church of Christ in Caesar's own household. Isn't that an amazing statement? I know he did, for in Philippians 4, 22, Paul said, and all the saints salute you. Notice, especially they that are of Caesar's household. Now, those men who put Paul into prison did him a grave and grievous wrong, but Paul kept on preaching. When a guard was changed, he would preach to the next one. And eventually, he established the church of the Lord in Caesar's own household. Look at it again. Now, now uh, would have you know, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the progress of the gospel. Establish the church in Caesar's household to the, to the progress of the gospel. And that uh, most of the brethren in the Lord being confident through my bonds. By the way, he didn't say all the brethren. I suppose the never, time will never come when every Christian will stand for the truth, but though we should. And that most of the brethren in the Lord being confident through my bonds are more abundantly bold to speak the Word of God without fear. Now, in the case of Joseph, there were some miraculous elements in that, making things work out for his good. But in the case of Paul, in this case, there was none whatever. And the days of miracles have ceased today. And when God operates by providence, He does not operate by a miraculous way, by sending an angel or the Holy Spirit or something like that. He operates through His truth, and we can see the good results here in Paul's case. Here is something else Paul learned. He learned how to be a happy Christian. In Philippians 4.4, 4, he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I want you to note three major points in this passage. Number one, a command. Rejoice in the Lord. In the second place, it is a perpetual command. Rejoice in the Lord always always. And it is a repeated command. Again, I will say unto you, rejoice. We need to learn to be happy because we have the promise of a hundredfold in this life and in the world to come, eternal life, Mark 10, 29 and 30. Here's something else Paul learned, which we as Christians need to learn. Paul learned to be gentle. In Philippians 4, 5, let your forbearance, and the King James says moderation, and the, and the footnote says gentleness, let your forbearance be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. And by the way, the Lord is always at hand. He sees and knows everything we do. In Matthew 12, 36 and 37, 
Christ said, Therefore I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. And then he says in verse 37, For by thy words shalt thou be justified, and by thy words shalt thou be condemned. In Hebrews 4.13, Neither is there any creature that is not made manifest in sight, but all things are naked and laid open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Lord is at hand in that sense always. But the first part of the passage says, Let your forbearance or gentleness be known unto all men. You know, our attitude has a lot to do with it. We must teach the truth. And in the Memphis School of Preaching, where I am an instructor, I tell these young men, when you go out to preach the truth, you fight for the truth. Because that's what Paul told Timothy to do in 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of the faith, lay hold on the life eternal, whereunto thou wast called, and didst confess the good confession in the sight of many witnesses. Paul not only taught a young preacher to fight for truth, he himself was a fighter. In 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, in the last chapter that he ever penned, he said, For I am now ready to be offered in the time of my departures at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearance. But he said, I have fought a good fight. And so we must fight the good fight. But now, if a surgeon is about to perform surgery, you know, he does not come into the room sharpening all his tools and laughing and saying, I've been wanting to cut on you for a long time, and I'm not going to give you anything to ease the pain. You know, if he's a good surgeon, he has a firm hand, and it may cause some pain, but he is as gentle with you as he knows how to be. And thus, we must recognize the need for gentleness. I mentioned I tell those young preachers to fight for the truth, but I also tell them, make sure you have an attitude of love in fighting for the truth. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.15, but speaking truth, the truth in love may grow up unto him who is the head of all things, even Christ. Paul learned how to be gentle with other people. But then here's something else Paul learned. Paul was a great man of prayer. In Philippians 4, 6, he said, In nothing be anxious, but in everything but prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, that we are to pray without ceasing. And that's what Paul did and tells us to do. In nothing be anxious, but in everything but prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Not only so, Paul learned how and upon what to think. You know, it has been said, we may not be what we think we are, but what we think we really are. And you know, that's a true statement. A person's character is never better than his thoughts. I know that is so, for in Proverbs 23, 7, the inspired writer said, that uh, about this matter, for as he thinketh in his heart, notice, so is he. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. God knows what we think. God knows what we do. He knows, therefore, the totality and the summation of our character. Now I want you to note six things upon which Paul says, 
we and they were to think in Philippians 4.8. Well, maybe before I, I'll mention that, then I want to go back to another passage because there's so many here. But he said, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise. Now notice, think on these things. Now, brethren and friends, if we would think upon things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, good report, we could be assured that God would be pleased with our thinking. But I do want to mention a previous verse, Philippians 4, 7. Paul, after saying in verse 6, "...in nothing be anxious, but in everything but prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God." Then he said in verse 7, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall guard, and that's a military term, shall guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. You know, each of us truly desires to have peace and tranquility. But the only way we can have the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, is by being a Christian and learning these great things that Paul learned about which we're speaking. I have been out traveling somewhere when the winds were exceedingly high, sometimes so high that I could not hear my motor running. But when I pressed upon the accelerator, I knew it was still running, for it would make the car go forward. But you know, in a case like that, if winds are high, say 50 to 75 miles an hour, and you drive into your garage, if it is a, a, an enclosed garage, then you can hear that motor as it continues to run. But it was running all through that storm. You just didn't hear it. Now then, the application of it is this. We live in a wicked world. John said in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lieth in darkness. But we as children of God can so live that we can have the peace of God which passeth all understanding, even though there are all kinds of vicious things that go on in the world. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Now we're back to verse 8 again, and I want to at least mention it one more time, where Paul said, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable, whatsoever things are just, Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Well, I pointed out that we are the summation to a great degree of what we think. In Proverbs 4, 23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Now then, if you can create a revolution in a person's thinking, if their thinking has been improper, and you can convince them to think properly, then you will create a revolution in a person's life, in his actions. And that's what Paul talks about in the next verse. In Philippians 4, 9, he says, The things which you both learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Paul said there are four things that we need to do to have make uh, to cause God's uh, have God's approval. 
He said, anything you ever learned from me, you do that and you will have God's approval. Anything he said you ever received from me, now you practice that and God will approve you. In the next place, he said, anything that you ever, you ever heard me say, anything you ever heard me say, you practice that and you will have God's approval. In the fourth place, he said, anything you ever saw me do, this do, and the God of peace shall be with you. You know, that's one of the most remarkable compliments in my judgment I've ever read. Anything that you learned, received, or heard, or saw me do, these things do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Quite a compliment. Paul was not boasting. He wrote this by inspiration. But in verses 11 through 13, I called attention to the reading of 11 and 12 at the outset, but I want to repeat that and then call attention in connection with it with verse 13. He said, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am there and to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know also how to abound. In everything and in all things have I learned the secret, notice that, both to be filled and to be hungry, both to abound and to be in want. And then he said in verse 13, I can do all things, but notice located where? In Him, in Christ, which strengtheneth me. Paul learned to be an optimist. He knew that if he served Christ, that all would work well for him. No matter what he suffered here, it would all turn out well for him, especially on the day of judgment, in the resurrection on the day of judgment and throughout eternity, and how we need to learn to be optimistic Christians. But here's something else that Paul learned in verse 17. There are so many of these, I can select only a few of them, that Paul, things Paul learned, which we need to learn. In Philippians 4, 17, you know, the Philippian congregation had sent financial aid to Paul. And Paul said this, Not that I seek for the gift, but I seek for the fruit that increaseth to your account. You know, the only time this statement I'm about to mention is found in the Bible is in Acts 20, 35. And Paul quoted the Lord as saying it. However, it is not recorded anywhere else. He said that Jesus said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul learned that. He practiced that, as stated in Philippians 4.17. But finally, I, I mentioned this. Paul learned the source of his blessings. In Philippians 4.19, he said, And my God shall supply every need of yours, according to his riches, but notice located where? In Christ Jesus. Paul was in prison. He could not send them money because he did not have it. But he said, And my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Some years ago, I was in my study one day, and, and I was reading from the book of Psalms. And though I may have read it many times, it had never, this passage, particular passage I'm about to mention had not registered. I came across Psalm 68, 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits. I picked up the phone and called my wife. I said, honey, I want you to listen to this passage. I may have overlooked it at times before, but I want you to know what it says. It says, number one, God gives us blessings. Number two, it says God gives us loads of blessings. Number three, it says God gives us daily loads of blessings. And I don't know from that day until now that I've ever sung that song, Count Your Many Blessings, 
count them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done that I do not think of that psalm. It has been such a tremendous pleasure to speak to you on the subject of things Paul learned. One of the greatest joys of my life is to live the Christian life and to preach it. And my prayer for all who hear this is that you will obey the truth and live and die by it, that heaven may be yours and that I may do the same and that we may spend eternity together when this life is over and in heaven. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. May the Lord bless and keep you until we meet there on the judgment day.